Amen. Hey, that's right. If you want to turn to page 91, you are more than welcome because it's time for the recap again on this topic. We're dealing with intro to apologetics to apologize for being a Christian. Yoo! I'm sorry. I'm, no, it's not what it means. Give a defense of. And we've been dealing with the skeptical questions that people have against Christians, Christianity, and certainly the Bible. And certainly it starts off with God's existence. And that's why we already dealt with uh, the argument of everything has a beginning, which implies a beginner, i.e. rhymes with God, Tom. God. That's right. Tom, give it up for Tom tonight. A little golf clap there. Everything has a design, which implies a designer, i.e. God. Uh, but what about evolution or evolution, whatever you want to call it? It does spawn evil. What you believe determines how you behave. And if you don't believe there is a God, you're going to act like it. And we dealt with that for 42 weeks. Who's counting? I am, Lindsay. Uh, and then we saw, well, wait a second. Where's this universal moral law come from? Unless it was given by a universal moral law giver, i.e. God. All right, then what about the Bible? Then they go after the Bible and says, oh, this is just a book whooped up by man full of errors. Mm -mm, don't think so. We dealt with that extensively. Then they start attacking God's character. Well, if God's so loving, why do we have all this evil and suffering in the world? Well, we dealt with that repeatedly. And then they go after Jesus, unfortunately. And they say, was Jesus really the son of God? And it's important. It's not just one of those, again, doctrines you got to check off in order to pass Tom's membership class here at Sunrise. Uh, no, it's really important. Jesus had to be not just fully man. He had to be fully God. And we dealt with that extensively. And the last several weeks have been on this issue. They attack his resurrection. Why? Because if you're the enemy, you want to attack the resurrection because as we saw, it is the crux of the gospel. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. The scripture says, 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is futile and you're doomed and you're going straight to hell. How many guys would say that's kind of an important teaching? Okay, right? And we've been looking at that and that's what we're going to recap. Now, page 91, part one, we saw uh, the Bible is clear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we clearly saw, again, it is very important issue. Okay, but then we said, well, how do we know? Well, we know logically something had to happen in the 50 days between when Jesus died and then Pentecost, the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2, and everybody was radically changed, right? Uh, something happened in those 50 days. Then people said, well, maybe it had nothing to do with the body. Maybe something of trickery was going on. And that's where we've been dealing with all the skepticism, all the crazy theories that people want to come up with, say, no, 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 Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. We already saw uh, people would say, well, maybe Jesus really escaped from the tomb. Remember that one? Boy, was that crazy, uh, with all due respect. No, blood and water came out, medical term, he was dead, okay? And how many guys would say, if you're dead, you're not doing anything? How many guys would say, if you're dead, you're not coming to study tonight? Unless you had some helpful, some friends, but you wouldn't know about that. It's still early. Let's move on. Okay, uh, then we said, well, wait, maybe the Jesus uh, enemies got rid of the body. No, that doesn't make sense. Why would they want to help when they're trying to shut it down? Maybe his disciples stole the body. We're going to get into this a little bit tonight again. Well, excuse me, these guys are a bunch of chicken livers. They ain't going to take on the Roman guards under the penalty of death. That makes no sense whatsoever. And then last time we saw it, maybe it was a hallucination, right? A mass hallucination. No, I don't think so. Uh, and then we begin to say, well, what about uh, that doesn't explain the changed lives? Certainly the Apostle Paul. Anybody been changed since you got saved? Please raise your hand. The rest of you, I'm glad you're here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so that's proof uh, that Jesus really is alive. And that's where we left off. And that's where we're going to continue on. Uh, at the top of page 104, consider the changed lives. Is your blank there? Can you believe it? We're actually starting off, read with a blank. I'm waiting until we get to a blank. We're starting off with a blank. Uh, consider the changed lives of the apostles, page 104. When Jesus was arrested, his apostles deserted him. Again, what's the status right now of these guys? They are chicken livers, all right? They have no sense of courage. They're running. They're hightailing out of there. And again, what's the premise? They sold the body. Are you kidding me? Okay. And again, how do you explain the radical change overnight in these guys? Right? They were deserting Jesus. Peter even denied knowing him is your next blank. Two in a row, Read, We're on a roll. Uh, knowing him is your blank there. In fact, let's read that to get a context of just the status 
of where these guys were after Jesus died on the cross. Mark 14, open your Bibles there real quick. Mark 14, all righty. And uh, you find Mark 14, what do you do? Stay there and go to verse 66. That's right. And we're going to take a look at what was going on. Okay, what kind of status were these guys in? Uh, let's take a look there. Mark 14, 66 says this. Now, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And notice it's just a little servant girl, right? Okay, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. And uh, she said this, you also were with that Nazarene of Jesus? And Peter said, come on, little girl. I'm a man. I'm a courageous man. I'm standing up for Jesus. What did he say to a girl with all due respect? Uh, but he denied, I don't, I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Uh, and, and said, and he went away into the entryway. Now, not to take away a whole lot from this text we talked about before, really fantastic thing going on here in the Greek. Uh, when it talks about uh, 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 Peter, when he's warming himself by the fire, okay, uh, the Greek word that's used for the fire here is different from a regular normal fire. This is a charcoal fire. Funny thing about a charcoal fire, if you ever barbecue with charcoal, it puts off a pungent certain smell, right? Now, if you fast forward to, I believe, in the book of John, where Jesus is, quote, reinstating Peter, and he asks him three times if he loves him. He denies him three times here. He's on the beach. You know what kind of fire Jesus is uh, lighting on the beach when Peter's out in the boat? Charcoal. So even before, you could bet, even before Peter gets to the beach there and realizes who that is, he's being reminded of this denial before Jesus challenges them, do you really love me? Isn't that wild? Let's close in prayer. No, we got a lot of ground to cover, Lindsay. Nice try. I appreciate that. Uh, but he denied it. I don't know anything. I don't understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Now, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near Peter said, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And uh, he began to call down curses on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed the second time. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept away. And then all of a sudden, five seconds later, he composed himself and became strong. And he decided he was going to... No. So the point is, what was the condition of certainly Peter here? And certainly, if you look at the other accounts mentioned there, of the apostles. These guys had no sense of bravery whatsoever. They were hiding out. They were hiding for their lives. Just 50 days later, though, we continue on, Peter and these same men boldly and courageously went everywhere, transforming the world. Here's your next blank there. Transforming the world with their message that Jesus was what? Alive. All right? They became powerful leaders of the early Christian church. They suffered and were killed for the cause of Christ. So as Soupy Sales says, what happened to cause this group of timid cowards to become so courageous? Well, in case you haven't caught on yet, they answer that for you. Keep reading the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, we saw last time. They saw Jesus Christ alive is the answer. And that's your next blank there. Bobby, can you believe that? That's like, I can speak in charcoal. I can smell flames coming off the page. That's four blanks in a row. Right? They saw Jesus Christ alive. Uh, was alive, all right? Now, at times, these men were arrested. They were beaten and sternly warned not to speak about Jesus and his resurrection. However, they would boldly and courageously go right back to the people and preach about the resurrection. Let's take a look at that because you need to see the radical conversion in a very short time frame. Acts chapter 5, open there, please. Acts chapter 5. And Bobby, if you find Acts 5, what do you do? Uh, go to verse 
Right on. Give it up for Bobby. You intern, you. All right. Acts chapter 12. Or 5. You can go to 12 if you'd like, but go back to 5, please. All right. And uh, let's take a look there. 17 to 42, kind of a lengthy passage, but you're going to see a transformation going on. Remember what he was doing? He, he couldn't even stand up to the little girl. Okay. But Acts chapter 5, and uh, starting with verse 17, here we go. Then the high priest and all these, uh, 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 his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And that is true. Move on. Uh, we're filled with the jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. Okay, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And at daybreak, they went and they hid out at uh, 7-Eleven and just got slurpees and they stayed in the back because they were scared. Because that little girl was coming around the corner and he saw her. She's going to get him again. No, what's the, what's the transformation? Right? And that they did that, they, as they've been told. And they began to teach people. What? Now, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent them to the uh, jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, hey, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found nobody inside. Now, on hearing this report, the captain of the temple, the guard, and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what could have come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Uh, at that, the captain went with his officials and brought uh, the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin and be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, uh, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, oh, listen, okay, we'll do what you say. Just whatever you do, don't bring in that girl again. Oh, I'm sorry. We must obey God rather than men. Do you get these are the same guys? Run from a little girl in just a simple accusation. And here they are, the threat of death, the authorities over them, taken to court. Excuse me? We're going to obey God. Something radically obviously changed, okay? And that's what he says. We're going to obey God rather than men. Then uh, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins of Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice what he says. We didn't just see this with our own eyes, that he really did rise from the dead. As we uh, talked a little bit last time, and I'm going to get to in just a second, Lord one. What did he say was also another powerful witness as to why we know Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead? The Holy Spirit. And when you get saved, what happens? You receive the Holy Spirit. And as anybody knows that when you get saved and immediately receive the Holy Spirit, things kind of change. So again, a changed life is a powerful way to demonstrate, no, Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that's what he says here. Okay, the Holy Spirit uh, in whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, when they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. But uh, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And so he addressed them and says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, uh, some time ago Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and it came to nothing. After him, okay, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census. He led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, 
in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will what? Can I translate that for you? It's a good logical response if you really think about it. If this resurrection thing is a bunch of baloney, give it some time, it's going to go away. Right? That's what he's saying. But if this really did happen, i.e. if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men and you will only find yourselves fighting against God. How many guys would say, you know, of all things to do on a Saturday afternoon, uh, trying to fight against God is not a good thing. <laughs> How about any time? I don't know about you, but I have camped several times on this verse. Okay, if you think about what's going on here. Uh, if you are doing what God has called you to do, and you know this is what God's called you to do, and if people come against you and they fight and kick and claw and chew at you, who are they really fighting against? And are they ever going to win? No. Right? His speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, as you saw, flogging was this wonderful, delicate procedure. It was kind of like a masseuse, right? They, they put these little uh, soap things on you and sponges, and it was just, ah, so relaxing. It's just, no, what was it? Remember flogging? It wasn't just even beaten, being beat with the whips. They had pieces of bone or glass or things woven into it. So when it hits you, it literally, then when it came back, it shredded off your skin, exposing your muscles. And if it wrapped around uh, on the front side, it'll just shred open and in, 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 uh, show your intestines. Remember that? So these guys still got it. They got flogged. Okay. And, and, and uh, notice what he says here. After that happened, he says, so they got flogged and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin. What? Man, I would rather have confronted that little girl. This is bad. It didn't turn out too good. No, it's just one. <laughs> what? Again, do you understand what happens when you get flogged? They got flogged and they left. Woohoo! Can I tell you something? You can't do that naturally. So, even how they reacted to this demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit, which only comes if Jesus is, in fact, uh, raised from the dead, okay? And so they're sitting there and they're rejoicing because uh, they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, i.e. Jesus. Day after day, the temple courts, uh, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ, okay? So it wasn't just, okay, we made it through that, let's get to the hospital, and we're going to the Bahamas, enough of this. Day after day, after, and they kept doing it. Under the penalty of, guess what? We're gonna do it again. You don't, mm. Something had radically changed now again that's the key phrase there he says the holy spirit changed lives and again the ability to put up with immense suffering the ability to not quit and dare i say as even they had they, they i don't care what you do we got to obey god rather than men we got to get the gospel out we got to tell other people about jesus christ that he rose again from the grave and that they can have a new life too and forgiveness of sins i don't care the cost i'm not going to quit that's only by the power of the spirit now, we see that in the scriptural example. I want to give you a modern example. Okay, this is the Stain family. I don't know if you ever heard of a missionary. true story. Gladys and uh, 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 Graham Staines were Australian missionaries in India, southwest of Calcutta. They worked in a treatment center and lived in an old house within the mission compound with their three children, Esther 14, Philip 11, and Timothy 7. So a young Christian family. All right. In January of that year, Graham took his two sons with him on an annual trip to the leprosy hospital that he was in charge of, a place where the highest incidences of attacks against Christian churches in India there. And he was aware of this, but he wasn't worried. He had decided a long time ago before to follow Christ wherever he led him to minister to lepers, and this was one of those places, right? At night, Graham and his two sons slept in the back of their Willie's uh, station wagon, uh, which had uh, more than enough room for them and comfortable bedding. 
And when they carried on their trips to the remote areas, uh, the boys always enjoyed the trips with their dad, and, uh, and he enjoyed having them along. So, right? So they had, had already developed a love for these people and the lepers and their patients uh, that they treated. And uh, Graham hoped that uh, someday they would follow in his footsteps, his boys, and join their parents in this work, which they had devoted their lives. India was now his and Gladys' home and would always be. They loved the people of India and could not imagine living and working anywhere else. God had brought him here, poured out his love through them as they ministered to the lepers and treated their sores. And, and one former leper said about the stains, quote, our world was darkness. We always faced death. None of the religious leaders bothered to give us even one meal. Then we begged for alms and they would throw stones at us and chase us away. We were untouchables. These religious leaders used to tell us that we deserved leprosy because of our sin and in our previous birth, i.e. the karma, uh, which is a lie, as we saw before, and we were left to die in the jungles all alone like worms. But then came the Staines family. They stretched forth their hands of mercy to us and to the leprosy home. There we saw the love of God. Okay? And the Staines family would personally wash our sores and dress our wounds with medicines. And when we were cured, they would teach us some skills and give us jobs. Uh, Philip and Timothy, they were loving kids, and they used to come and play with us, the total outcasts of society. But here's where I'm going with this. On this particular night, Graham fixed the bed in their station wagon not long after dark, and they all climbed in and settled down for the night. It had been a hard day, and they were all tired, and the boys, more from running around the village and playing with the other children than from work, uh, though they always willingly helped their dad when he needed them. But before they went to sleep, they, they did what they always did on these trips. They talked about Jesus for a while, and then they each said a prayer. Graham loved to hear his boys pray, especially Timothy, who still prayed in the innocence and simplicity of a young child. So not far from their station wagon, about 300 yards, all of a sudden a group of young men playing drums uh, and enjoying a traditional Indian dance. And the rhythmic beat of the drums helped Graham and his two sons fall asleep quickly and soundly. Uh, tomorrow was going to be another busy day, but there would not be... A tomorrow for them. About 12.20 in the morning, a.m., a radical group of Hindus approached uh, through the fields armed with axes and tridents, uh, three-pronged spears. Uh, they had just one predetermined target, the Staines station wagon where Graham and his two sons were sleeping. As they got near the vehicle, they started screaming as loud as they could. The leader struck first, swinging his axe at the tires, slashing them uh, so the vehicle couldn't move. The others broke open the windows and struck at the stains, beating all three unmercifully with their fists and clubs, including the boys. Graham received the worst beating as he tried to shelter the children with his body. And after beating all three nearly unconscious, the raging mob repeatedly stabbed them, thrust their stidents, Strident, tridents through the broken windows again and again in a wild frenzy. Then the leader piled straw under the vehicle and set it on fire. In seconds, the station wagon was engulfed in flames. Through the broken window, Graham could be seen holding his two young sons close to him. This really happened. Anyone who knew him was certain that the one name he'd be speaking over and over again as the flames consumed them was Jesus. And the murderers watched as the three in the vehicle were roasted alive. However, a number of villagers who fled the raging mob said they saw a wide beam of bright light shining down on the burning station wagon. And later, his wife Gladys says, I do believe that my husband and children were specially strengthened by my Lord and the angelic hosts from heaven. Now here's where I'm getting with this. Listen to that. Ask if she would now leave India 
and their work with the leper, she replied, never. My husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation. India is my home. I am happy to be here. I hope to die here and be buried right along with him. And Esther, the only remaining child, when asked how she felt about the horrible tragedy, said this, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. Just like the response of the disciples, yeah, worthy to suffer for the name, for Jesus, the King of kings and Lord. That's not natural. If the resurrection didn't happen, if this is a bunch of baloney, there's no way. That's impossible. Not just then, because they say, oh, that's in the Bible. They make it sound better than it is. Generation after generation after generation, Christian after Christian after Christian, unfortunately, when faced with this kind of circumstances, and as testimony after testimony after testimony of the Holy Spirit empowering to do stuff like this. It's real. Okay, and that's the point that he's talking about uh, in this passage there. Josh McDowell writes about the apostles. He says, you could imprison them, you could flog them, you could kill them, but you could not make them deny the conviction that on the third day, he, Jesus, rose again. And what happened to them? We already saw this before. They were killed with a sword. They were crucified uh, and, and exiled and then boiled uh, John with uh, oil there. Uh, there were uh, other reports, as we already read. Uh, again, they were skinned alive. They were beheaded, uh, dragged through the streets, and it, not good, okay? And not one of them denied. And well, what about Peter? Well, Origen, the top of page 105, 81, 85, 253, reports that Peter uh, was crucified head downward for he had asked that he might suffer that way, unworthy to die in the same manner of Jesus. Now, here's the point. Do you really think these men, and dare I say, the Stain family, and any of all the other Christians throughout history, would, quote, die for a lie? That's your next blank there. Do you really think that they would die for a lie? Now, pay attention, because there is a skeptical response that comes from this. But think through it logically. It says here, the response is that, is usually course back at this, is why a lot of people have died for a lie. So what does that prove? Yes, a lot of people have died for a lie, but they thought it was the truth. Now, if the resurrection didn't take place, i.e. it was false, the disciples knew it, right, is the point. And as we've been seeing with the evidence, I find no way to demonstrate that they could have been deceived. Therefore, these 11 men not only died for a lie, if you're going to say that, but here's the catch, but they knew it was a lie. There's no way. That's why he says it would be hard to find 11 people in history who died for a lie, here's the point, knowing it was a lie, because that's what you're accusing. And the manner in which they died wasn't just, <gasps> it was horrid. Just like with the saints. There's no way. Consider, again, we're talking about changed lives. Consider the changed life of James, the brother of Jesus. We find out that Jesus had brothers in Matthew 13. I've shared this before. I remember one guy I was witnessing to he didn't think Jesus had any family. What, what? Matthew 13, man, turn to there. What? And he didn't just have brothers, he had sisters. What? Yeah, read the Bible. Okay. Here's your true question for tonight. Piece of gum is on the line. Jesus had brothers and sisters. No, that's not the question. You gotta, come on, it's a little bit more difficult than that. But thank you for trying were they older brothers and sisters or younger brothers and sisters? Okay. Uh, I don't know who said it, but she can fight for it later. All right, but anyway, that's right. Let's move on. All right, uh, in Matthew 13, uh, coming to his uh, hometown, he uh, began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Remember the Greek that was used there? It was just, it's literally like, oh, poof, out of your mind, blown away. 
in the vernacular. Just, what? They were amazed. And uh, where did this man get this wisdom and the miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Jesus? And again, this is the power, okay, of a changed life. When the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, moves through you as a Christian, even today, when you're exercising the gifts that he gives you at salvation, it's the same response. It should be the same response if we're busy serving him and if we're walking, living, and keeping the step of the Spirit and his Spirit is flowing through us, we get the same response. What? Bobby's an intern? He's preaching the Word of God? What? Dude, I know your background. Right? And on and on it goes. When, when you're, and, and when you're doing what he's called you to do, specifically gifted, there's power in that. Right? And it just blows people away. And that's what he's talking about. As we see, one of his brothers' name was James. And we learn from the Bible that Jesus' brothers did not believe that he was the Christ during his lifetime. Quote John 7. Even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Right? And again, as I shared my story, my own brother uh, came to Christ because of a changed life in me. I don't get the credit for it. I'm just following Jesus. But I, and I didn't know that until years after, later I got saved. Right? But it was just seeing a changed life. Which really, read between the lines there. Might be a little convicting. And I don't want to put an unnecessary guilt trip on us because we love our family and our friends and our co-workers. Maybe those co-workers. No. You ever wonder why they're not coming to Christ? Maybe they're waiting to see a changed life. Dun, dun, dun. Preacher's going to meddling. Let's move on. All right. Later, after Jesus had been killed, uh, Jesus became a leader of the, uh, or James became a leader of the Christian church. Now, remember, he's thinking, you're wacky. Remember, other texts said his family was trying to convince him, hey, hey, come on home. You're embarrassing us. Remember that? So that's the state of his family. And James was one of the guys. And, and later, he, what? And he later wrote the uh, letter of James. Okay, in the New Testament, and begins this letter by calling himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a leader, but he admits that his older brother, something really was special about him. He was not crazy. He did rise again from the grave. He is the Messiah. Okay, let's move on. He was later recognized as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul ranked James right up there with Peter and John as pillars of the Christian church. Josephus, the ancient historian philosopher, wrote around AD 93 that James was stoned to death by Ananias, the high priest, because of his Christian teachings. Other, there's, I think, about three different historical accounts about James' death. Uh, pick your one. Uh, that could be it. I'm not going to get dogmatic about it. I kind of lean more towards uh, the other one that we've talked about before, and that was he was actually put on the pinnacle of the temple there, and they threw him off, and he survived, okay? And uh, the people were coming over to him, and they was actually, he was praying for him, okay? Uh, but they clubbed him to death, okay, if you can believe that. But anyway, but what happened to cause this kind of transformation is your next blank there. This is the family. And if you notice, of all things, family, that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Trying to convince family, because it's, rhymes with family, Family, right? They know you. They know your background, right? And so this is what Jesus, whoa, how are you going to get his brother? Well, that really happened. He really did rise from the dead. And look at all the, wow, this is real, right? Okay. Christ died for our sins, was buried, raised on the third day. Then he appeared to who? Here's the big one, James, right? 
to his own family, and then to all the apostles. Next page, 106. The other evidence is the large number of witnesses is your next blank there. Anybody's pen catching on fire besides mine? <laughs> witnesses, right? And we talked about this before. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ died for our sins, was buried. He was raised on the third day. After that, he appeared to more than 500. Not five. 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, or in other words, have died. This letter was written and being circulated during the lifetimes of the men and women who saw Jesus alive after he'd been killed. Here's the point. Now, again, as we saw, first of all, if 500 people witnessed an event yesterday, and it was in the newspaper this morning, and Tom says, nope, couldn't be, that was a hallucination, would that be logical for Tom to say that? No. Five people, eh, not 500. And that's what we have going on. And this is the point. Listen, it wasn't just that there were so many witnesses. Here's the other half of that equation. If anyone wanted to make sure that this letter was true, all they had to do was find one of the only three people that lived on the four corners of the earth. No, was to find one of these 500 people and ask them. You don't believe me? Take your pick. Which one you want? He's over there. She's over there. He's over there. There's a whole group of them over there. Over there. Go talk to him. You talk to him. Right? You could have talked to uh, uh, the people he appeared to. Mary Magdalene, okay? The woman returning from the tomb. Uh, Peter, uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. The other apostles when Thomas was absent and later when he was uh, present. The seven by the lake of Tiberias. Again, these 500 people at the same time. To James himself. To the 11 apostles. Uh, when Jesus was there and he was physically taken up into heaven and he's going to return the same way. Uh, to Paul. Uh, to Stephen. To Paul in the temple. John on the island of Patmos. Okay? You could ask any of those guys. It isn't just like, well, you better go have a meeting with Indiana Jones because you're going to be on a journey for a long time. Right? If you can find that one guy, last I heard he was in Tibet, but he keeps moving around. He might be in Australia now. And if you could find him, maybe you could have, no, that's not what's going on. There's so many people, and they're still alive. Uh, some of them had fallen asleep, some of them had died, granted, but you still got a bunch. And you could ask, and you could have denied this whole thing and put it to rest, but that's not what happened. This guy says this, Anderson, he says this, think of the number of witnesses over 500. Here's the blank there, over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses, men and women who gave the world the highest ethical teaching it has ever known and who even on the testimony of their enemies lived it out in their lives. Think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards uh, cow cow cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence and then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more than a lie. Or in a hallucination. Or the ladies went to the wrong tomb. What's he say here? That simply wouldn't make sense. Can I tell you something? Based on the evidence, you got to have more faith to believe that than the evidence for the resurrection. That's really what's going on there. Top of the next page. The silence of the Roman and Jewish leaders. Okay? The silence, top of page 107, of the Roman and Jewish leaders. These men were powerful and hostile to the Christian faith. If they proved that the resurrection was not true, they could have destroyed Christianity forever. Right? They don't want this to go on. Right? And so why don't you say something and just squash it down? Anything. Not what happened. In fact, when they were challenged, still didn't say nothing. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 2. Peter, he's in front of a loud, large crowd, and here's what he says. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God uh, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves, what? You know this is true. You were there. You can't deny this. And they didn't try. 
This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why? The wages of sin is death. You have no sin. Jesus had no sin. Guess what? Death's got no hold on you, right? Right? God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Now, why didn't the Jewish leader say he was lying? Put it down. That's a bunch of baloney. I mean, even after Peter here, all right, that's it. That's enough of this. Are we done yet? Can we move on? That's a bunch of baloney, Peter. Hey, shut your mouth. That's a bunch of lies. We're not going to put up with this. Let's go back. You're going to get flogged. Nothing. Unless, of course, because Jesus' body was not in the tomb. Right? The empty tomb was there for anybody to examine it and they knew it, right? There's nothing there, right? Say you lie all you want, but show me the body. There is no body, okay? Number three, the rapid and massive growth, is your blank there, of Christianity. Christianity began in the very place it could have most easily have stopped. In less than 60 days after Jesus was killed, the Christian church had 3,000 members, okay? And then it's rapidly spread all throughout the Roman world, and today Christianity is the largest, quote, religion in the world. Again, I don't like that term, uh, in the man sense, uh, but uh, that's how man wants to do it. It's a relationship with God. But anyway, think about it. If this is a bunch of baloney, all right, and if you were making this up, as we saw before, the last thing you would do was want to try to circulate this uh, story, quote-unquote, that you're trying to make up, if that's the case, uh, in the same place where he got killed or the same place where he was put in a tomb where people could go verify. You say, hey, he was in Tibet. We saw him there. Yeah, right? And who could check out the facts? But it started right there in the place where it could all be denied. It could all be produced and nothing happened and Christianity takes off like a wildfire. Why? Because guess what? He really did rise from the dead and there is nobody. It's in the exact same place. Again, if you're making it up, you wouldn't want to do it in the same place. That's the worst thing you do. Number four, the absence of mourners at the tomb. The absence of mourners at the tomb, the tomb that Jesus was burying in never became a monument or an important place for people to come. Why? Because his body was not there, right? Think about it. Now, the Catholic Church wants to try to say they know where it's at, but I'm sorry, probably not where it's at. It makes for a great uh, a tour if you go over there, I hear, uh, but uh, that's not necessarily uh, Jesus' tomb, okay? But think about it. I mean, if this is uh, the place where it's at, uh, why don't you have a bunch of these mourners, Right? And, and by the way, if you know some of the Jewish customs and mannerisms, don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, uh, they actually would pay people to do that. Uh, in some instances, I believe it was like a status thing. The more people that you could hire to <laughs> put on a big show, right? Wow, that must have been an important person, right? We kind of play the same game in kind of a weird sense, don't we? Right? We say, man, I hope there's a lot of people at my funeral. Hope I'm not one of those people that only two people show up, right? And just because I said that, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> You're going to be rainstormed. Nobody's going to get here. No. Right? It's the same thing. But where's all these mourners? Right? What's there to mourn? He's alive. Right? He's alive. Uh, worship, number five. Worship, the first day of the week. This is huge. Right? One of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath day holy, Exodus 20. The Jewish Sabbath day is Saturday. Okay? At the time of Christ's death, the Sabbath was a 1,500-year old tradition and very important part of the Jewish person's life. 
right? Remember that? Remember we talked about before in our discipleship studies, some of the Jewish, uh, what they have taken the law of God and just turned it into this legalistic thing, rules, traditions made up by man that Jesus countered the Pharisees uh, and the scribes when he showed up on the scene there in his first coming. And that was because, you know, some of the ones we talked about is they just, they took it and just went to the extreme outside even what God mentions in the law, right? And uh, not just the Sabbath, but they said like on the Sabbath day, uh, you know, they actually calculated uh, how far you could walk, but they found loopholes. Remember that? That what was considered not working, how far could you walk on the Sabbath without it being considered working because you're not supposed to work, right? But what they did is they found out the day before, if you left a pair of shoes at another person's house, then you could cheat because you could walk your deal, but if you had to go get some shoes, then that didn't count. And then they also said that you couldn't spit on the Sabbath, okay, not because, well, they're, they're being, you know, uh, you know cordial and, and no, because if you spit, they, this was their rule, you spit on the ground, and the projectile, the, the, the spittle, hits the ground, and it's going at an angle, a trajectory, then it hits the dirt, and it starts to roll in the dirt, rolling the dirt's considered plowing, and plowing's work. That's why you can't spit on the Sabbath. That's the rules that Jesus says, excuse me, you guys are a stumbling block. Right? But here's my point in saying all that. That was a serious deal of Sabbath. 1,500 years. Even abused. But it still was a big deal. Now, here's the point. A great number of the early Christians were Jewish people, right? Yet, they began to worship when? On Sunday, the first day of the week. Why would they break a 1,500-year-old tradition that God himself ordained other than the obvious answer? Why do we do it today? The whole point of meeting on Sundays. That's the day that Jesus rose again from the grave. Right? It would make so sense that this is a lie. They're not going to break that tradition. Okay? Number six, the phenomena of the Lord's Supper or communion. The Lord's Supper or uh, communion. Right? The Lord's Supper is a memorial of Jesus' what? His death. Now, however, we read in Acts chapter 2 that by this time uh, was a time of joy and happiness. When they came and they ate together and they prayed together and they shared together, it was a great time of joy. The breaking bread, i.e. communion, the Lord's Supper, right? The memory of a meal which led directly to the betrayal of the crucifixion of Jesus, their Lord and friend, would have been unbearably painful, right? What changed the sorrow and anguish of the Last Supper into a communion of joy the world over? How many guys would say that when you go to a funeral, the last thing you want to do is get the giggles? You're even afraid to giggle at that. You're going to make me tell it, aren't you? It happened to me in sixth grade. <laughs> this is worse than the diet corn story. I kid you not. I thought dad was going to kill me. I thought he was going to skin me alive. I wasn't even saved. <laughs> but it really did happen at my great-grandmother's funeral. I don't know what it was. Do you ever get one of those moments you know you're not supposed to laugh, and all of a sudden you laugh, and then that makes you laugh more? And then you try to hold it, and you, your gut's jiggling away, right? And you're in public, and then just, it starts this crazy cycle that makes it spiral out of control. Let's move on. Okay, but anyway, obviously it wasn't appropriate, right? And that's the whole point. I mean, here you have, if Jesus is really dead, and he didn't rise from the, the grave, and he just died, and what are you celebrating about? How, how could you take this, the Lord's Supper communion, which, woo! In fact, if you read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, some people were kind of even going a little bit too far. 
And Paul had to rebuke him for it. And listen, guys, okay, I know this is a time of joy and celebration. Why? Because Jesus really did rise again from the grave. That's the answer to the question. If he's stuck in the grave, it should be sad, but it's not a sad time. It is a time of joy and happiness. I don't know about you, but every time we take communion, aren't you glad that we take the time to sit there and go, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for your blood, for giving me of every single one of my sins, washing me clean, even the sins I don't even know about. <laughs> Why do we have to do that? Are you kidding me? Because it's true, because he did rise again from the grave. So why is this not just a time of mourning? Unless, of course, that's the answer. He's alive. He, he, he rose again from the grave. Okay? Now, the last one, number seven, the symbolism of the meaning of Christian baptism. Think about this. What's going on? We just did this on Sunday. Right? From the very birth of the Christian faith, okay, was recognized as symbolically, key word there, symbolically reenacting the death burial, going under the water, dying to the old sin nature. Remember that? Okay, and the what? What's the other half of baptism? What's it symbolizing? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, raising out of the water to share a new resurrected life with Christ, right? That you are identifying with his death, but you don't stay there, okay? You're being raised with the cleansing of your sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're a new creature, new creation in him to live the same way that you used to do and justify it and say, God will forgive me. No, a new life, a new resurrected life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it symbolizes. Okay, now how many guys are glad? How many guys were baptized on Sunday that are here? I'll ask you guys, since you guys personally went through that. How many guys are glad that uh, when I baptized you and Bobby and JJ and Ryan, this is the interns there, whoever did your baptism there for you, we didn't have this attitude that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. In other words, we didn't keep you under the water. <laughs> are you glad? Anybody? How many of you guys are glad when you got baptized that somebody who did your baptism believed in the resurrection of Jesus? Right? Although, is Ryan, Ryan you here? Dude, I was watching you. I don't know if you're at, but it was, dude, you, let, you need to bring it up a little faster next time, is all I'll say. <laughs> Whoa, dude. But you got to learn. You got to learn, I guess. I'm just glad it wasn't me. Let's move on. The New Testament explains. <laughs> I'm not kidding either. New Testament explains that when a person believes and confesses that Jesus is Lord and Savior, repents of their sins, and is baptized, they're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. All right, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptized into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. How are we to account for the symbolism and the meaning of the Christian baptism if the resurrection really didn't happen? This would be the shortest uh, uh, increase of membership in the church ever because as soon as everybody got baptized, they're going to heaven. Right? That 3,000 would have wouldn't last very long, right? But this is one of the most powerful ways, again, as we close, how we know Jesus really did rise again from the grave. And this should be encouraging to you and I, because our family, our co-workers, in all seriousness, I think sometimes are waiting to see that boldness of the Holy Spirit in you and I. That, that power that can only come from Him when you're going through persecution, hard times, and difficult circumstances because you can't fake it in the flesh flesh does eye for an eye tooth for a tooth flesh freaks out 
but not the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll close with this example. Salvation in Christ is often birthed in tragedy, and so it was for Brother Alex. He received Christ after armed revolutionary forces of Colombia seized his family farm and assassinated his father 12 years ago. Alex's faith had been tested repeatedly since his father's murder, but his greatest challenge came just four years ago as he was traveling to work by bus with 26 other banana farm workers. And uh, one morning, as the banana workers traveling to the plantation, some of the revolutionary forces stopped the bus. When the four guerrillas armed with AK-47 rifles forced their way onto the bus, Alex felt a check in his spirit. He said, and this is him writing this testimony, he said, when I saw them, the Holy Spirit witnessed to my heart that they were going to kill us. And I began to shake, and I knew death was near. However, and this, you know, the shot, listen to this. He says, Alex then suddenly felt an overwhelming peace and joy. How do you do? He didn't have time to go to you know, the doctor and get a prescription and fake it. How did this happen? The Holy Spirit. How do you get the Holy Spirit? When you get saved which proves that Jesus rose again from the grave, right? He says this, I, I began overwhelming peace and joy. He began, listen, singing. These guys are coming on the bus with guns to kill these people. He starts to sing, sing songs of praise while the gorillas herded the laborers off the bus and lined them up alongside the road, right? Can you imagine that, right? And they're being herded off the bus at gunpoint. They're going to kill you. I got the joy, 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 joy down there in my heart. But that's usually not how we sing it, isn't it? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And then you wonder why the next line is, where? But he's singing. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. He's singing. He's getting all that. He thanked and praised God and sang to the Lord with all his heart. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God, there is none like you. Wow. Alex's response to death uh, came natural to him. He said, quote, isn't this the normal reaction of any Christian who deeply loves Jesus? It's the time of death, the time to enter his presence. So I was worshiping and praising him. Wow. The gorillas tied the hands of each of the laborers with ropes uh, used for tying up bundles of bananas. They separated the workers into three rows. They forced them to kneel on the, the grass. Uh, but the armed men became agitated as Alex continued to sing his praise songs. So one of them struck Alex with the end of his rifle to shut him up. Then a co-worker cried out, don't kill me, don't kill me, I'm totally innocent. And Alex says he became impatient with the brother and asked him, why are you seeking light from these men if the only owner of our lives is God? I mean, guys, the typical response would be, oh, you're freaking out too. And he's like, what, dude? Right? Then an eerie silence descended on the captive. Suddenly a blaze of gunfire erupted, shattering the silence. The gunmen emptied their automatic weapons on the hostages. Alex expected a multitude of bullets to pierce his body, but to his surprise, only one grazed his arm. He experienced no pain. Warm blood and brain tissue belonging to the two women kneeling beside him splattered his face and soaked his shirt. The guerrillas moved to the front of the line and sprayed gunfire along the row where Alex uh, uh, kneeled. Uh, a bullet struck Alec between the nose, uh, his nose and eye, blew out the right side of his face. Uh, his eye exploded, but Alex did not lose consciousness. As he lay on the ground, immersed in a pool of blood, the, gorilla, the gorillas, now armed with machetes, began severing the heads of many of the fallen laborers. Alex recalled, quote, at the moment they approached me, I suddenly realized, get this, I suddenly realized I had not told them about Jesus. What? Though I was drowning in my own blood, I could hardly speak, and I was totally blind. With all the strength I could muster, I cried out to them, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. 
And at this, an angry gunman silenced Alex by shattering his jaw with the end of the rifle. When it was all over, 25 of the banana plantation workers perished in the attack. Alex survived and has since had several reconstructive surgeries on his face. Alex recently graduated from seminary. How many people do you know who profess to know Jesus Christ and they got obtuse because somebody sat in their pew and I'm not going to serve Jesus no more. I served in this church for 937 years and nobody ever said thank you. I quit. And this guy goes through that and he's off to seminary. Although he's blinded in the attack, the young evangelist says he clearly sees the call of God on his life to continue sharing the love of Christ with the Marxist guerrillas and all the hurting Colombians. God has given him a vision to set the captives free. This is one of the most profound ways to demonstrate that yes, Jesus really did rise from the dead. Don't underestimate the power of just you and I being godly Christians, like we're supposed to do anyway. And maybe that's what our world is waiting to see. Amen? Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries. And I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, Let's take a a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, The Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word, Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. 
And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn, we, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it, and a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it. If he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go 
to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.